This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a program brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday at the moment. So, for your listening pleasure, we've selected a series of stories we ran earlier in the year. In this program, Jane Edwards links Dunedin to the growth of the kiwi fruit industry. I read a letter to the editor from Charles Brash. Richard Stedman tells us of a bus crash at Burke's, and Judy Southworth discovers how the library's Dunningham Room got its name. We're familiar with the long-standing disagreement between Australia and New Zealand over where pavlova was first produced. But what about the origins of the kiwi fruit we like to decorate our pavlovas with? Credit for its introduction into New Zealand lies firmly with a Dunedin woman. It's a story about some missionaries in China who were at the right place at the right time. At the forefront of many historic milestones in Dunedin were men with famous names like Burns, Cargill, Stewart, Vogel and MacAndrew. However, often overlooked are the women who made significant contributions to the religious and social life of the settlement, particularly in the field of education. They advocated for kindergartens to be established, for the first girls' secondary school in New Zealand, and for females to be admitted to the university. That's where our story of the birth of New Zealand's kiwi fruit industry begins, with the higher education in Dunedin of two women, Mary Isabel Fraser, known as Isabel, and her sister, Catherine Graham Fraser, known as Katie. Isabel Fraser was educated mainly at private schools until she was 13, and then for two years at the normal school, after which she trained as a teacher and went on to have a highly successful teaching career. She taught first at Seacliffe School, and then while teaching at George Street, she studied for a BA and then an MA at Otago University. Her next appointment was at Otago Girls High School, and then in 1894 she was appointed principal of Whanganui Girls College, a position she held for 17 years. Katie Fraser attended university for a year, and it's thought she too taught in local schools, before becoming a missionary in China, where she continued the commitment to women's education she shared with her sister Isabel. With two other Dunedin women, Mary Moore, also a teacher, and a nurse called Miss Smith, Katie Fraser joined the staff of the Church of Scotland Mission in Yichang, near the Three Gorges on the Yangtze River in the Hubei province of China. They arrived in 1897, with lofty aims. Consider the young womanhood of China shut up behind curtained doors, only daring to venture out to any distance on very rare occasions. Think of her complete subjection to the will or whim of husband, mother-in-law or elder sister-in-law. Is this not a captivity from which we should endeavour to deliver them? How they achieved this we learn from a Wikipedia entry on Katie Fraser's colleague Mary Moore. After overcoming their initial culture shock and persevering with language learning, the missionaries worked tirelessly to advance the education and well-being of Chinese women. Women and girls were largely confined to home, especially those with bound feet, 
So one of the first establishments they set up was a boarding school where girls could receive an education without the social stigma of walking to and from school in public. In time, the missionaries also built an orphanage, a hospital and a women's training centre where they achieved great success teaching lace-making and embroidery. The items produced provided income for the Chinese women and were also sold abroad in Scotland and New Zealand, contributing significantly to the costs of the mission. But missionaries were not the only foreigners working in the Yichang area in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. With parts of China opening up to foreign trade and scientific exploration, the most significant of these in the context of this story were European plant collectors, and in particular Ernest Henry Wilson. From China, Wilson sent back to England roots, bulbs, rhizomes and seeds of such flowering plants as magnolias, lilies, roses, primulas, rhododendrons, viburnums and cotoneasters, and a fruit called Actinidia deliciosa, which we now know as the green-fleshed, hairy-skinned kiwi fruit. Ernest Wilson also introduced the fruit to the foreign residents of Yichang, including, we understand, Dunedin missionary Katie Fraser. Here's what Wilson had to say about this delicious new fruit he had encountered. In 1900, I had the pleasure of introducing this fruit to foreign residents in Yichang, with whom it found immediate favour, and it is now known throughout the Yangtze Valley as the Yichang gooseberry. Unfortunately for Wilson, the gooseberry seeds he sent to England produced only male plants and no fruit. He wrote, It has so far failed to do itself full justice, but in the years to come, I believe it will be one of the finest ornamental climbers in cultivation. The fruits are delicious. The same thing happened with plants Wilson sent to the United States. They became of ornamental value, but of no use as a commercial fruit crop. And this is where Isabel Fraser returns to our story. On leave from Whanganui Girls College, she paid a visit to her sister Katie at the Yichang Mission, and while there, acquired seeds of the Actinidia deliciosa and brought them home with her in 1904. The seeds were planted by Whanganui farmer Alexander Ellison and were producing fruit by 1910, now believed to be the first ever fruit of Actinidia deliciosa produced outside China. Further propagation by pioneer kiwi fruit growers Bruno Eust and Hayward Wright was the start of this new horticultural industry in New Zealand. The fruit were known as Chinese gooseberries until 1959 when they were renamed kiwi fruit. More recently, the gold-fleshed kiwi fruit has been developed here, achieving huge export success. In March this year, Gold kiwi fruit exports were worth $187 million, up $105 million on the previous March. These days, exports of the fruit are marketed under the name Zespri. And what became of the Fraser sisters? Isabel was the founding principal of the Iona Presbyterian Girls College in Havelock North, where her sister Katie joined the teaching staff on her return from China. Another sister, Nellie, who was among the first nurses trained at Dunedin Hospital, became matron of the school. Sources for this story included Te Ara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, 
and an article by prominent horticultural scientist Dr Ross Ferguson in the New Zealand Journal of Crop and Horticultural Science, published online in 2010. This is Jane Edwards. The late Dunedin writer and poet Charles Brash was a man who appreciated that culture is not only found in books and paintings. He was a keen writer of letters to the editor, and with one in the 1960s he came out fighting strongly for the city's heritage buildings. City Heritage, 10th of September, 1969. Sir, Nearly a fortnight has passed since your report of the 2nd of August that the Bank of New South Wales intends to put up a new building on its present site in Princess Street. It's astonishing that this has provoked no comment. The present Bank of New South Wales is, by common consent, one of the best buildings in Dunedin. In their recent book, Victorian City of New Zealand, Mr. McCoy and Dr. Blackman remark, as if with premonition, that it is a building we could ill afford to lose. It is indeed. With the Bank of New Zealand, it is one of the only buildings of any consequence in Princess Street between the Octagon and the Exchange. It has the added interest of being the last home in Dunedin of Francis Hodgkins. There was talk some years ago of putting a plaque on the building to record the fact, and it is a pity it was not done. Is it too late to invite the Bank of New South Wales to reconsider its plans and to keep the present building for as long as possible? A good building of this kind is of far more than private concern. It is a public building in that it imposes its character on the street and the neighbourhood, and exerts a strong, if intangible, influence through its proportions, its dignity, its restrained decoration, on all who work or have business in it, and who pass it day by day, who in fact live with it one way or another. Should not the city consider drawing up a schedule of older buildings, say earlier than 1920, of special interest, as examples of good architecture, and giving them prominence in its publicity. Such a schedule might take the form of a supplement to the City Planning Department's report, Our Kind of City. Public awareness of the value of these would thus grow. Ownership of them would confer public prestige, and owners should then be readier to ensure their buildings as long a life as possible. The Planning Department might encourage them in this, to try to preserve what is good in the city's character. No one wants Dunedin to stand still, but it's the many old buildings of little or no value that ought to be replaced, while the relatively few good ones should be treasured. The destruction of the old AMP building, which I understand was so soundly built that it would have stood for another century, seems an example of conspicuous waste which might and ought to have been avoided. That building, well-kept, gave the AMP an imposing presence, which its very ordinary new erection, whatever its other advantages, will evidently not have. If further good older buildings are destroyed, Dunedin in a very few years will have lost much of the strong character and dignity which makes it so unusual in New Zealand, and so interesting and enjoyable to live in, and which is also its chief attraction for visitors. Charles Brash. In 1944, a bus travelling from Dunedin to Port Chalmers, carrying 26 passengers, plunged down a steep bank between Meyer and Burks. It came to rest 12 metres below the road, with its wheels in the air and its roof torn right off. 
Somehow, its occupants escaped death. Richard Stedman with that story. On the night of Monday, June 20th, 1944, overcrowding and the safety of passengers on the Dunedin to Port Chalmers bus service run by Railways Road Services became the focus of a vigorous debate at a meeting of the West Harbour Borough Council in Ravensbourne. During the discussion, Councillor Garton declared that he was afraid to travel on the buses, saying, If ever a bus does meet with an accident on the road, it is going to be a terrible one, and I, for one, don't want to be in it. He said the principal reason for the overcrowding in the daytime was the lack of an adequate train service and was supported by Councillor Robertson, who agreed that overloading of the buses, some of which were not in good mechanical condition, would inevitably lead to a serious accident. Following the discussion, a committee was appointed to consult with the Port Chalmers Borough. The fears of those West Harbour councillors were soon realised, for even as their meeting concluded, the late bus for Port Chalmers were preparing to leave the road services depot in Dunedin with 26 passengers on board. It departed shortly before 11pm, but would never reach its destination. At Ravensbourne, the bus climbed up to Montague, now Totara Street, on the prescribed route and travelled along the suburb before returning down the hill to rejoin the main road in what was later described as normally a nerve-wracking experience for the passengers. In 1944, the Port Chalmers Highway was a very different road from State Highway 88, which was built during the late 1950s. Parts of the old road remain in use, winding around the shoulder of the hills to provide access to the properties along the way. The section between Mayai and Burks is now known as Burks Drive, and according to one regular passenger on the route, the buses travelled at a greater speed than was thought safe, and the stretch of road between Mayai and Burks where the accident occurred was chosen by most drivers to put on a little extra speed because there were no stops to pick up or set down passengers. As the late bus rounded the left-hand bend before descending into Burks on June 20th, 1944, Its lights fused, and it was plunged into darkness. The driver, blinded by the night, was unable to see the way ahead as the vehicle veered towards the edge of the downhill curve. Passengers expecting a crash were gripped with fear as it careened off the shoulder of the road into the abyss, twisting like a corkscrew and falling toward the water. It rolled over twice, and on the first roll the roof sheared off. The occupants were thrown onto the broken roof and emptied into the bushes as the body of the bus rolled away and came to rest upside down beside them. Miraculously, there was no fire. No one was killed or crushed and injuries were incredulously light. The 27 souls on board had escaped shaken but alive. One of the injured told a Daily Times reporter that most of the passengers seemed to realise that with the fusing of the lights, a serious accident was inevitable. They naturally called for help, he said, but there was not the slightest suggestion of panic. Charles Haywood, who had been a long-serving member of the West Harbour Borough Council, was quick to react to the disaster unfolding virtually on his doorstep, as one of the passengers recalled. Most of us in the bus were badly shaken from such a terrifying experience, but our immediate thoughts were for the injured. One or two clambered up the cliffside and they made for Mr Hayward's residence at Burke's. 
Fortunately for the more seriously injured, Mr Hayward was at home. And while he was taking a number of the more seriously injured to the public hospital, his wife and daughter attended to those who were able to walk to his home. The driver of the bus, George McAllister, was reported to have had considerable experience on the road. He suffered facial injuries and was able to walk about for some time after the accident but was taken to the hospital. Two ambulances and three doctors were on their way to the scene a few minutes after the alarm was raised and arrangements were made at the hospital to deal with at least twice the number of patients who were eventually admitted or treated and discharged. Doctors from Port Chalmers were also quickly on site and police arrived to help in moving some of the first cases to be brought up to the roadside. The first of the injured passengers was taken to hospital by Mr Hayward just after midnight and a little later the first ambulance arrived with three more, followed by the second about 25 minutes later. Several of those suffering from shock were transported by private cars. On receipt of the news of the accident, the Dunedin manager of road services, Mr R. Watkins, arranged for another bus to be dispatched. He paid tribute to the presence of mind of the passengers and the fortitude of the injured in what was the first major accident involving any of the railway services buses in the Dunedin district. The following day, the Evening Star reported... A view of the smashed heavy vehicle this morning made one wonder that there was not a heavy death toll among the passengers, or that more of them were not gravely injured. It seemed fortunate that the body of the bus did not collapse, which would have led to the crushing of the passengers, most of whom were actually left lying in confusion on the inside of the roof as it was torn away from the body. It was indeed fortunate that only six of the injured passengers were admitted to hospital. On June 22nd, Watkins responded to the accusations that overloading on the service compromised safety and in so doing sparked an outburst of letters to the papers which were highly critical of the overloading and the mechanical condition of the buses having caused a number of breakdowns. The capacity of the Leyland bus was about 30 seated passengers, but D.S. Greenwood of Port Chalmers wrote that on one occasion 53 people had travelled on the 10am bus. He continued, I travelled in the bus which left just before the ill-fated one, and it was crowded to the point of suffocation. The doors could not be closed, owing to the passengers standing on the steps. And other correspondents wrote, I've travelled many thousands of miles in various buses, but never before have I had such a nerve-breaking trip as the one on this bus. The driver should have been handsomely rewarded for getting his passengers and himself safely to Dunedin. During the whole trip he had to struggle with his bus to change gears, and he was unable to make one clean change of gears for the trip. One of the passengers had to stand in front of the driver and wipe the windshield down for him every now and then. How that bus reached Dunedin safely will to me always remain a mystery. On many occasions we were violently thrown in our seats and one passenger found the motion too severe for his stomach. Who is going to take the blame if one of these badly overcrowded buses crashes over a bank with fatal results? Sources for this item were the Evening Star and the Otago Daily Times through the Papers Pass website. This is Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. If you have attended meetings in the Dunningham suite at the Dunedin Public Library and wondered who Dunningham was, then stay tuned. Judy Southworth has found out the answer. 
Dunedin has a library to be proud of. It's a fitting tribute to a city of literature. There have been several key people behind the setting up and organisation of this library, established in 1908. John Hislop, a teacher from Scotland, arrived in 1850, became Otago Education Board Secretary and later Inspector of Schools. He promoted the idea of both school and district libraries. But it was American Andrew Carnegie's grant in 1902 for a free public library building that allowed for the establishment of the library. Of the charge librarians who stood out in the years to follow, three played significant roles. William Barker McEwen, Archie Dunningham and Mary Ronnie. Mary Ronnie was the head librarian in Dunedin and later was appointed to librarianship's top job when she took charge of the National Library in Wellington. In a two-part interview, Mary told us about Archie Dunningham, her distinguished predecessor at the Dunedin Public Library. Archie Dunningham came to Dunedin as a very beautiful young man of 26. The photographs show him as a piece of elegance. He wasn't here long before he went off to America with a Carnegie Fellowship. And Carnegie at that stage was very important to New Zealand libraries. And I should say that the reason why Dunedin Public Library was a free public library, the only one in New Zealand, was that they'd been given a grant of £10,000 by Carnegie in 1905 to build the building. So they had to be a free library and he took this over. He went to America to look at the systems there because they just assumed that everything would be a free library and came back full of energy to do all sorts of things. And there are some nice stories about him coming back because Eric McCormick had been an acting librarian and wasn't prepared to spend the money on cheap fiction, which was not literary. And Archie had a wonderful time spending all this unspent money and I can just see him enjoying it. And we used to say, there's been a reserve for this, Mr Dunningham, and you say, order half a dozen more. So order half a dozen more became a staff saying. Anyway, when he did come back, what he found was a very traditional British library, a big reference collection of first-class standard, which McEwen had built up with the help of every knowing person he knew around the university and the public library and the boys high school principal all contributed ideas of what should be in this collection and it was extremely good and we have a complete record of that. I checked it against Son and Shine's list of best books once when I was working at Monash and 90% of what he bought was actually in that best books. And a lot of what he bought, of course, was New Zealand material that would not be in Sun and Shine anyway. So that's, that here was this wonderful reference library in the upstairs room. And downstairs was a whole collection of newspapers from around the world. I still don't know how he got them to get there in time for the opening of the library. He came in on the 1st of May, the library opened in November, and he had magazines and newspapers from around the world in days when things came by ship and it took three months to get here what did he do anyway he got them so the newspapers occupied a huge amount of ground floor space and a whole room of periodicals that people could read in the library and what mr dunningham saw was this rather pathetic 
lending collection in one little room and it wasn't what he wanted. What he wanted was all this good material which was in the reference collection available to everybody to borrow it if they wanted. There would be some stuff that would be kept in the library so that you could see it there like dictionaries and so on but the rest could go out because it was a sheer waste of money having beautifully pure volumes upstairs untouched by human hand and everything downstairs just overused. So he changed the whole aspect of it and he he didn't really have a great respect for Dewey classification, but he used it to a certain extent. But up in the Rev, what was the And when I went to the library, we still called it the Rev, simply because it always had been the reference room. But in that was art, literature, language, philosophy, religion. So that was the big, big upstairs, but it was lending and reference. Downstairs there was the department which I eventually took over, which was commerce and technology, which took the whole space where periodicals had been, and history, social sciences, biography and sociology went into where the lending had been, and the lending swept the newspapers into a corner. We still kept them, but we devised ways of not taking the space. And we had some lovely times devising what would go into the popular room. And I wish sometimes that the library would do it now, because he worked out that what was really popular was fiction, books about sport, books on travel, and people came in to do sewing and knitting. Now, Mr Dewey had put one in the 600s and one in the 700s, so they're now totally separated. But people think of sewing and knitting as hand, home hand, so that was all in the popular room. And that was the Dunningham invention. And we'll continue the second part of Judy Southworth's interview with Mary Ronnie in our next program. This program, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.